This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You're listening to the Property Show on the Morning Run, and I'm Philip C. And on today's Property Show, we are in conversation with James Lau. He's an engineer from Dr. Nick and Associates. And today we're going to dig deeper into the concept of sponge cities. It's a very interesting concept that's being rolled out around the world to manage floods globally. And we wanted to just get his perspective on whether this is something feasible in Malaysia. A very good morning to you, James. We have had so many debates about how we should mitigate floods in KL and Klang Valley. I just want to get your perspective on this whole concept of sponge cities. We're beginning to talk about it quite a bit and it did originate from China. But could you perhaps illuminate to our listeners what this whole concept is all about? Okay, so sponge city is a concept that at its core is to use uh, the term sustainability, where they try and use natural concepts or, you know, what would occur naturally and, and methods to, you know, to help achieve flood control, but not just flood control, but also other things like water safety, uh, environmental benefit, and, and more holistic in terms of its uh, general use of water. And, and, and the solutions can be you know, quite sustainable and comprehensive. Uh, and some of the methods include like infiltration, retention, restoring water, retention, holding it back, and, uh, you know, some ways of also using the land or the structures to purify potentially into water resources like water reuse uh, and actually managing the discharge. Uh, now, in Malaysia, the Spawn City is, is not necessarily a whole new concept. Uh, it is the Malaysian uh, Stormwater Manual, uh, known to us as MASMA. And it does talk about the use of what we term and similar to Spawn City, like best, work of best management practice EMPs, which uses detention storage, you know, natural channels. Uh, etc. But if you, you're specifically talking about the term spawn city, uh, that has come up from China uh, over the last, uh, I think, must be about eight to ten years ago. But it also follows a much wider approach that has been uh, mooted internationally. And they use different terms. Um, some use green infrastructure that's used in Europe, yeah. low impact development <laughs> in the United States, water sensitive urban design in Australia, and, and various uh, other terms in UK, uh, you know, uh, sustainable drainage, sustainable uh, approaches. And it all talks about the use of um, more methods that actually would occur naturally. So they try and use like uh, channels or storage or holding the water back. And you know, we're talking about more better use of wetlands, uh, flood plains, and swales. Swales are just you know, uh, channels which are, have more natural you know, covering and use of uh, kind of seek to move water and also seep it into the ground. A concept of a sponge is a material that can absorb a lot of water, right? And eventually can be dissipated relatively fast. Can you help me visualize how that actually works in a city, especially when you talk about all these nature-based solutions? You know, what are the de- what are these ideal nature-based solutions that work as effective sponges that essentially uh, is able to contain and, you know, corral water closer to it and then able to discharge it and dissipate it out faster? Yeah, so you have uh, a lot of initiatives uh, in urban environments. Uh, you have the ones that come up over the years, like green roofs, uh, vertical gardens, uh, even even the use of planting boxes, which can actually, you know, be used not just to put in put a tree or plant, but actually use as a concept where the rainwater would actually go into those planting boxes 
and actually slowly seep out. These are just some of the examples uh, that I know of. But they can also be uh, very specific uh, design choices in how you build the urban environment. We traditionally, uh, as, as design engineers or drainage or environmental engineers, we, we tend to like to build hard uh, structures, you know, mm. drains, channels to get the water in and out very fast. But with augmenting the design, that means you know, carefully trying to change the design and try to hold the water back in a sustainable way. And then integrating it with features that can seep the water or store the water. Uh, those are some of the things that can be done to make the urban environment like a sponge. Instead of you know, hard surfaces where the water just quickly you know, runs away very fast. There's nothing holding it back right. uh, in that way. What are examples of cities around the world that have successfully modeled this example? We hear a lot of secondary cities in China try to embrace this. Perhaps could you help us understand, you know, where have where have been the successes and perhaps challenges and failures as well? Yeah, so um, I won't go too far uh, overseas, but let's just uh, closer to home. Uh, the best example that uh, I can know of is, of course, Putrajaya. You might know of Putrajaya wetlands. Mm. And when Puchiraya was designed, they specifically designed a wetland to actually help with the storage or management of flows of water. Now, so there's the wetland and then there's the, the features in which, you know, you actually have to design it. There are actually different zones in a wetland. Uh, I won't go to the technically, but there are zones that actually uh, are some, the plants that actually are submerged, plants that actually interact with the surface water intermittently. Uh, so you bring oxygen from above into the water features. So those are some of the things uh, you can actually design from a green geo or brown field site uh, where you can specifically design. I know there are some developments in Malaysia uh, where developers are trying their best to bring in some you know, green features. Uh, I won't mention there are quite a few examples and, and you can actually go to that. No, that's Malaysia. If you just go next door, our neighbor, I, I know we, we, we try not our best to use too much of Singapore examples, <laughs> but you know, there are examples in Singapore, there, there, there are green initiatives, having worked there before, they have this active, beautiful and clean concept. And of course, you know, if you actually, for Singapore, you know, we, we like some of the, the places in Singapore, you know, like Gardens by the Bay, they actually, as a concept, but not as a total, totally new system, you know, they have these uh, trees, the inverted trees that actually collect water as a conceptual system. But I know they're also trying to build more, you know, there are a lot of trees actually in, in Singapore. You talk about Putrajaya as an example, and perhaps it's easy to have better these solutions in Putrajaya on the basis that when it was being developed, it was considered greenfield. I wonder how difficult it is to apply these solutions in a brownfield environment, in a mature, in built-up landscape, like in the heart of KL, where we are seeing so many flash floods at the moment. How easy is it to apply these concepts, to apply this sponge concept in the heart of KL? Uh, so the dynamics of flooding, and, and we discussed it before, there is the waters that are generated within the local area. And there's also waters that come from around or being channeled from other areas. So if you're just talking about the water that's generated within a local area, I think it's not too difficult to implement some of these 
sponging kind of <laughs> methods and facilities. Uh, of course, there are always issues of how you maintain it, uh, how you actively design it, the, the size, whether your development has the ability to cope with this facility. But in the very center area, it might be very difficult. Uh, or it, depending on you, you do the study, it might not be very effective. Because in the dynamics of the flooding and the channel of flow, uh, this kind of uh, slowing down the flow actually will not solve the problem because there's just too much water. Yeah, you know, because you can slow you can slow it down and absorb up to a certain point, and we can study that, but it won't completely resolve. It. Because that's one of the biggest challenges with KL Klang Valley, right? It is a very hilly area. There are valleys and peaks, and so I'm sure these valleys will contain water much faster. So Sponge City is very interesting concept. It it can help a bit, but it's not the end all solution. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it's it's definitely a. Uh, something that must be considered and one of the bullets or the you know, missiles in your arsenal mm. to, to solve and uh, implement. Uh, what we like it is it doesn't just only look at flooding. If you take the concept as a whole, it also looks at cleaning the water, potentially using it as supply, uh, beautification, right. you know, other benefits. And if you take it as holistically, that's definitely something anybody would like to consider in any new development, provided you can, you know, cost it, plan it, maintain it. So beyond the whole concept of just flood mitigation, you're saying that the value and benefits of it extend far beyond that. I guess then the ultimate question is, when we talk about uh, the materials, the kind of concepts. We, you have given examples of uh, natural materials, but are there industrial materials that could be applied that could make the sponge concept easier in a built environment? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I'm, I'm not an expert on, on materials, but you can mimic uh, sponge uh, facilities by certain structures. And this could be uh, uh, materials that actually can absorb water and release water. Or you can even design structures that can then actually store and release the water. Least water. I mean, one of the most common one is you know household rainwater rainwater but and there are you know you can have many or smaller ones. Uh, you can have potentially underground storage facilities. Plus, of course, land is a premium in KL, so if you can't put it on the surface. Uh, there are some initiatives to actually uh, design and store water below ground or material that can actually mimic uh, groundwater and uh, groundwater aquifer. Today, I'm in conversation with James Lau from Dr. Nick and Associates on sponge cities and how one can mitigate floods. We'll be back with more after these messages. Stay with us, BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're tuned in to The Property Show on The Morning Run. I'm Philip C. And with me today is James Lau from Dr. Nick and Associates as he helped us understand what the concept of sponge cities were and what can we do to mitigate these flash floods that have been incurring across our city uh, in the past few months. Uh, James, you know, recently we saw DBKL announce a whole slew of initiatives to mitigate the recent flash floods. Could you perhaps help us understand the the initiatives that have been proposed so far? Yeah, so uh, if you read the press statement, official press statement, there are actually uh, 14 initiatives. And these are actually uh, responding to the, the recent floodings, what they term as short-term measures to solve the hotspot. So they're not long-term measures. They're trying to actually um, quickly respond to the needs of the local areas where they see it. So then I don't, they're not long-term solutions and they made it clearly in their in other press statements that they have a long-term study uh, by ICRAM that will be completed uh, sometime next year. And that will have the long-term strategy. So I think it's very good in the sense they said, look, 
engineers like myself would take a long time to study things <laughs> and they want to run across all across the T's and dot the I's, right. you know, do our simulations and make sure that we get everything right. Uh, but they say, wait, what? We can't wait for you. You know, people are getting flooded. You know, what can we actually do? So they're, they're very wisely say there are some practical things that will probably not completely resolve the problem 100%, but there are definitely things that can help and lessen the impact potentially or if they're very successful, maybe they'll solve the problem. What struck you of the 14 that would be high impact? Um, I think what is uh, very good is that they, they've gone down to some very basic uh, recommendation. And, and, that's, and that to me is always very good. They say, look, uh, let's make sure the drains are not clogged up. Uh, one of them, you know, there's, there'll be monitoring and cleaning works. Uh, so if the drains are blocked up, uh, we're going to make sure that they can actually freely flow. So that's definitely, to me, you know, let, get the system back to how it should be performing and maintaining and working at its optimum. So that's definitely uh, one of the things which I thought is, is excellent. How successful they are, of course, you know, uh, you know we wait and see. I mean, unblocking drains, that's a basic requirement, isn't it? So in the plan that was highlighted in the short-term plan, how different are they going to implement the unblocking of drains? Because we have always understood that that's a key problem. What are they going to do differently this now to help us really do this properly this time around? Of course, this will of course depend on how much effort and, and the, the teams which they actually... Uh, put on the ground, but from what we can see from the announcement, they, they have said that they will give dedicated teams. Right. Uh, they will have sufficient uh, teams uh, on site. They will have uh, at strategic locations, they will place the facilities to actually pump or clean those hotspots. And and this is a, quite a good thing because they say, look, there are hotspots. Uh, they're not saying there are no hotspots or they don't know where the hotspots are. There are hotspots. And they've listed out the hotspots. And they said uh, for that, they will actually have a strategic way, uh, a, a, at least a strategic plan. And I think it's, it's very good to actually handle those uh, hotspots. And a, a very various other short-term initiatives, sandbags, desilting, uh, potentially, you know, uh, localised on-site detention. And there's some, some other other interesting uh, ways they have this uh, you know they want to have active debris uh, management you know and they in, in potentially even have I believe if I'm not mistaken what they meant by uh, non not to have any little free zones so, to speak. Yeah. so there shouldn't be any source of debris uh, blocking uh, the channel when I listen to you the intention seems very good the question of whether they successfully implement will be very evident when these flash floods take place when raining season does come through and you're right when I hear you they seem very short term because they tend to address at the point when discharge is likely the highest. Perhaps not addressing it when you should go to the root cause or to the source, if my, my understanding is right. And is that the distinction between the short term and long term? That short term is talking about taking these short term measures at the place where you expect hot spots where the highest level of discharge is expected to appear and you address it there, as opposed to the long term study, which is, I think, going to the root cause. But then that's where the challenge is, isn't it? With the long-term study, it cannot be confined to DBKL because upstream uh, and root source problems can be beyond the boundaries of KL Klang Valley, fair? I, I think you're spot on. If I understand uh, the background of this, I think they're trying their best to come up with some uh, short-term solutions uh, because I think 
the public requires this or has made it known that they want to see, you know, they want to see something done. Yeah. Uh, but uh, flooding, as it become more and more urbanized, it becomes more and more complicated, multifaceted, multi-agency, multi what we call boundaries, uh, uh, which uh, to to how flood actually occurs, and and sometimes uh, it will take a long time to actually come down to what the root cause is, because everybody is becomes very good, specialized in managing their part of the system or their part of. KL, when actually you actually, the problem become more complicated and you need an integrated approach. Which then leads to the question that these short-term measures that are being proposed and if they implement successfully, we will still see flash floods, right? It's just that they will be less severe. Is that what we are expecting for the next 6 to 12 months? That with the expectation of high frequency flash floods, we just will see less severe flash floods, less damage, less impact? Yeah, uh, uh, if I may phrase it in, in a different way, they're not wanting to solve the flooding. They're actually trying to deal with the actual impact when flooding actually occurs. Uh, of course, they're, they're trying their best. If they can mitigate it with the clearing and ensuring the channels can flow, then we won't see the problem there. But a lot of it is actually dealing with, uh, as you said, um, the impact of, of flooding when it does occur. Now, the million-dollar question is, we have had many infrastructure projects that have been touted to help manage floods. Um, you've heard of the smart tunnel. And, and I want to just get your view. Should we have another equivalent smart tunnel? Because there have been proposals bandied around that these equivalent tunnels are necessary to mitigate and manage future floods. Do you think that's going to be part of the long-term plan? Uh, yeah, sure. If the uh, long-term, if a tunnel actually helps the, the flooding, but the, um, and it actually can be shown to actually uh, reduce uh, flooding, sure, why not? Uh, but tunnels, uh, it's from one taking flow from one point to another point, they will also then need to design getting the flow to that tunnel location mm. and then discharging it away. Uh, so there will be other associated uh, facilities and programs to actually you know, channel the flow to that tunnel point to get it away. So the public also needs to know that a tunnel is great, but you also need the uh, subsequent uh, facilities to actually uh, get the water away. So in the, in the case of uh, smart tunnel, they designed it, it was very good, but they also, I think over the years, actually had to design facilities to get the water to the two balancing tanks and then to the tunnel and get it away. Yeah, so essentially you just can't build a tunnel alone. You need to make sure that there are all these channels that bring the water there. And that will be another complicated endeavor going forward. We converse and we talk a lot about these big structural cross-boundary uh, solutions. And perhaps we'd like to end this conversation with what can a property developer or a property owner take action on themselves, right, in their property to help mitigate these coming six months, 12 months flash floods that take place, right? Is there any action we can take on our part? If you are uh, at risk of flooding, uh, there are some small practical things you can do at the property level. There are things um, like sandbags, uh, which can actually just, if the water is rising, you can put it at your main entrance to limit the flow uh, getting in. Uh, you have more money and more access to funds. You can actually you can actually do uh, flood barriers, uh, flood doors, which actually uh, inhibit flow getting in. Now, that will depend on the risk, a level of risk of flooding in your property, whether it's just you know, a couple of feet, a couple of meters. Uh, anything more than and one meter, a meter and a half, you're talking about very drastic uh, 
a high level of flows, which can actually potentially even cause uh, structural damage. Uh, then there's very little we can do. Then the first question is awareness. How do we know whether our property is prone to floods. Is there any data source or any database where we could actually look at to get a gauge whether we have a, at risk of being flooded or not? I, I think it's nice to talk about historical, but with increasing flooding risk, do we have any place where we can source modeling, forecasting projections or where are the likely flood prone areas in the region for us to understand whether our properties are likely going to be affected in the future short-term and medium-term? I know there are some initiatives to actually start a kind of a flooding law. I think this is uh, on social media and online, but I don't know how, whether these are just, you know, once you start it up, whether it gains the traction to get it uh, more extensive. Um, there are, I guess you can try and approach JPS uh, and various government agencies for them to produce their flood mapping. But I think for most of us at, a, at our individual level, you will know, whether your property actually historically has risk of flooding. Either, you know, if you don't know, you should actually potentially even ask your neighbours around you if you're moving into it. Uh, because flooding is not something that happens uh, frequent, flash flooding. It's not something that happens uh, in isolated, like a 1 in 100 or 1 in 200 year event. Yep. There are precursors and signs of flooding. Flooding will occur, actually. Because we know uh, in Malaysia, if you go to uh, certain parts of Malaysia and East Malaysia, you can actually see the telltale sign of the flooding yeah. where it actually reaches. But flash flooding is, a, of course, a lot more complicated because it's potentially dynamic. It could be an operational issue or, or something that's uh, intermittent that actually happens. But most property owners will actually know whether the property is uh, at risk of uh, potentially flooding. James, thank you as ever. Very insightful. That's all the time we have for today's property show. Thank you for being on the show, James. I've been speaking to James Lau from Dr. Nick and Associates on sponge cities and actions you can take to mitigate future flash floods. I'm Philip C. Signing off for the morning run. We have the 10 a.m. news bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.